All right. Uh, good morning and welcome to Citizens once again. My name is David. Everyone calls me DC. Uh, so glad to see you all and I'm not sure how necessary it is to preach uh, because I think the sacrament really preaches itself. Uh, it really is a reminder of God's promise of grace. And grace is something we, we desperately need because our lives are hardwired. Uh, our minds and our hearts are configured to always earn, uh, to prove our worth, uh, to perform, to be accepted. But what grace does, it radically reconfigures our hearts and our minds, knowing that what we have in Christ is a gift. Uh, we didn't do anything for it. And so grace is something that we want to cling to and we want to be shaped by. And so last week, uh, Pastor Jason preached on the church in Antioch who was radically marked by grace. And because of that, they didn't make any sense at all. It didn't make sense. Uh, they were birthed out of suffering, going through really, really difficult things. Um, they grew tremendously without an apostle, without a pastor, uh, they invited an ex-terrorist to be their pastor and teacher. And in a time of scarcity, they were generous and giving. It did not make sense. This church did not make sense. And our desire as citizens is to be a church that doesn't make sense in the eyes of this world, but makes perfect sense in the eyes of God. So we're continuing in our series through the book of Acts, and we kind of have an abrupt, abrupt transition because uh, Luke is going to take us back to Jerusalem, and we're going to look at the church there. And things are very different at this church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, with me to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 19. I'll be reading from the NIV. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. So let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, Intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this uh, met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of, out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them, for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. 
when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. This is God's word. Amen. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Father, we ask for your help. Open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us. Holy Spirit, fill this place and move in powerful ways in which only you can do. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, tomorrow is uh, my wife and I's 13th anniversary. Um, thank you for that. It's been a long but amazing journey. And we have four kids together. We have a boy and three girls. And uh, something that's been really um, amazing and also very puzzling is all four of our kids are so, so different. Uh, they have similar physical traits, but as they're maturing and growing older, they have their own personalities, their own quirks. And there's one specific kid in mind that I'm just like puzzled. Like, how did you come from me and Jane? Because she is so fiery, so aggressive, so out there. And I'm talking about our third daughter, Dylan. And we're just like, where did you come from? And I'm looking at my four kids. I'm like, you have the same parents, but you guys are so, so different. And it's both amazing and quite puzzling. You know, in preparing for this message, I wondered the same. We have the church in Antioch, which we learned about last week, thriving and growing. Things can't go any better for them as a church. But then we have the church here in Jerusalem who is hiding, who is suffering, and is under constant threat. They believe in the same Jesus. They experience the same grace, and their situations can't be any more different. How can two communities who share the same faith in Jesus look so different? Why is one thriving and growing, and why is the other one suffering and hiding? You might have asked the same question to yourself. Why does faith seem to be working for everyone else and not for me? Look at my life. I can't find a job. I'm barely getting by. Can't, can't get into that grad program. My loved ones are suffering. I'm still alone. And then you look around this room and you look at everyone else's Instagram. They're finding someone. They're getting promoted. Things are going well for them. Living their best lives. And you start wondering, maybe I'm not believing hard enough. Maybe my faith is defective or deficient. Or maybe this faith thing isn't really, it doesn't really work. It's a sham. Maybe I need to do more things. How do we make sense of these two churches who believe in the same Jesus, who experienced grace but look so different? How does faith work? What does faith actually look like? And I believe that when we look at this church in Jerusalem, we learn quite a bit about 
faith. Three lessons. First is this. Faith sometimes leads us to places of disappointment and pain. Second, faith calls us to take one simple step. And lastly, faith is more about the object than the subject. So first, first, faith sometimes leads us to disappointment and pain. Uh, we are introduced to Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa. His grandfather was Herod the Great. He's the one who ordered the execution of all the sons under the age of two during the time uh, they were getting ready for Jesus. All right? There's prophetic messages of this new king of the Jews. And so out of fear, he ordered the execution of all the sons under the age of two. Herod Agrippa's uncle was Herod Antipas, the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. Right? A long line of dysfunctional and evil kings. And so Herod Agrippa politically motivated, started to persecute the Jewish Christians. We have to remember, Judaism was still the dominant tradition and culture in Jerusalem at the time. Christianity was still new. Right now, Pastor Jason shared a while back, we would rather be ruined, right, than to change. And so this new movement that was happening rubbed people the wrong way. And so knowing what it would do for his political career, Herod Agrippa started persecuting the church. But this wasn't the first time. Uh, if you've been in tracking with us through the, the, the book of Acts, we see that persecution was something that happened regularly. We saw it with the stoning of Stephen. And we also see people trying to try and convict the apostles constantly, but with little success. Little success. But this time... They were going after the big names. James, the brother of John, one of the 12 apostles, one of the three actually in the inner circle of Jesus. He got caught and Herod executed him, beheaded him. And after this, Herod's approval rating shot up. And now he's about to double down. He's going to go after the leader of the Jerusalem church. He finds Peter and he imprisons Peter to do the same thing, to execute him. You know, when we look at these accounts, I mean, we look at the early church and the persecution and the suffering they had to endure, and then we hear things out there, right, even within some Christian circles, that if you just have enough faith, if you just believe enough, your life should be good. Health, wealth, prosperity. You shouldn't have to go through anything hard. There is a message out there like that you realize that it doesn't hold water at all. I mean, James and Peter, in the inner circle of Jesus, who experienced his earthly ministry, who saw his crucifixion, who experienced his resurrection, would we ever say that these brothers were lacking faith and that's why they're in this situation? No one would say that. So the question is, why does God allow the very people that he loves to suffer. Why? And this is one of the hardest questions that I get asked at every Alpha or any new, like, uh, new believers class. Why does God allow bad things happen to good people? And this is a hard question, and there's no easy answer for it. But I believe that the Bible does offer some explanation and reasons for suffering and pain. First thing that we have to realize and acknowledge 
is that when God created Adam and Eve, he created man and woman, he created them with agency, the ability to choose, to have a free will. And with that, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be their own gods. So they severed their ties with God to be their own gods and were introduced to sin. And sin entered the world. And not only did it mess up, mess up relationships, we see it right now with this hurricane. Creation itself is broken in agony because of sin. So we understand that suffering and pain was not a part of God's original design, but was a result of sin. Secondly, suffering is used for corrective and disciplinary purposes. We see this in Scripture. There are consequences to the things that we do, and God as a loving Father would want to course correct for us. Any parent knows this truth. But we also see suffering and pain as a type of refining, as a type of test that God, God allows us to experience so that we can grow and mature, be healthier in relationships, to prevent us from future harm. So he would send us tests. But sometimes suffering has no other purpose than to have us to lean on God more. To look to him. To realize that he is the only one who is trustworthy. He is the only one that can offer us peace, love, and security. But you have to wonder, why was James executed? And why was Peter spared? Was there not a prayer meeting for James? Now, I think the church was well aware that James was in danger, and I'm pretty sure they were praying. So why? How do we make sense of this? You know, this past week, there was a memorial for Pastor Tim Keller, who was an amazing pastor and author and theologian in New York, one of my heroes. He passed away from pancreatic cancer. And one of the final things uh, that was recorded that he said was, he said, I want, I'm ready to be with Jesus. In the face of death, in his suffering, he has a different perspective. He has a different outlook on his suffering. There's something waiting for him. There's someone waiting for him. And he says, I'm ready to be with Jesus. See, Pastor Tim understood that the, something that the gospel also affirms. That suffering, as hard as it is, is temporary. It will not have its final say. There is a final reality with Jesus that we are all awaiting and so although we don't know God's sovereign will for James and why he was executed, we can know for certain that Jesus called him home. See, if we take the position that all we have is this world and this life to live, then what are we going to do? We have to maximize it. We have to squeeze as much as we possibly can from it. And so we got to pursue happiness with all our might. And so then when su what suffering is, is the suffering is the ultimate obstruction and inconvenience to this pursuit of happiness. But this is what we do. We try everything to position ourselves. We try to work so hard that we don't experience any form of suffering. No discomfort. And actually many of us were living our lives that way. Trying to avoid suffering at all costs. We can try. And maybe for a season, you can experience some form of happiness, but it's a matter of time. 
We have so little control over what happens in this world and in our lives. It's just a matter of time. The next thing comes to us. An earthquake, a hurricane, cancer, disappointment, brokenness. What we have in the gospel story is not only a place for suffering, but profound purpose for it. Jesus' life honestly shows us how horrible and how devastating suffering can be, but also the joy and glory that follows it. There's a greater hope that we have. And even the ultimate form of suffering, which is death, plays but a cameo in our lives. You know, I know there are many here in a season of pain and suffering. You may be wondering, is my faith not strong enough? You may be wondering, has God abandoned me? And I want to tell you and assure you that the answer is no. He has not. There is something good that God is doing. And we see this in the early church. So faith can look like Antioch, but faith can also look like Jerusalem. Secondly, faith calls us to take simple and small steps. Herod commands four sets of guards for around-the-clock watch for Peter. Uh, Six-hour shifts. And you may see, man, this is kind of extra, right? But we have to remember, there were several attempts to capture the apostles, to convict and try them, but they haven't succeeded. So now they have Peter, the leader. Herod wants to make sure he doesn't get away. So every, every hour of the day, Peter would be shackled to two guards, one on his right, one on his left, and there would be two guards watching him outside the door. And this was during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right after the uh, festival of the Passover. Herod was waiting for an opportune, good time to put him on trial, a public spectacle. And after the Feast of Unleavened Bread was his uh, timing, right, to execute him. Then we get to verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's uh, wrist. And this is so um, both amazing and very funny to me. First of all, you're on death row. This is the last night you have on earth. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be sleeping. I wouldn't be sleeping. But Peter is deeply asleep. And not even an angelic light woke him up. Right? Now, granted, you have to remember, this is the same Peter who cowered in front of a young girl who called him out to be a disciple of Jesus. He's the same Peter who was in the upper room, afraid for his life after the crucifixion. Now here, in prison, night before his death, he's not only sleeping, he's in deep sleep. I find this to be very, very funny. He's so deeply asleep that the angel had to nudge him awake. And the chains fell off. And this next part also made me laugh. Verse 8. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And this is every parent's morning, right? Getting their kids ready for school. Like our house is pandemonium in the morning. Brush your teeth. Find your clothes. Find your shoes. Right? Get in the car. Get in the car, right? It's like... This is so funny 
that Peter has to be given specific instructions of what to do. Put your clothes on. He put it on. Put your sandals on. He put on his shoes. Put that cloak around you. Like, the angel had to, like, hold his hands in freeing him. And I wonder if the angel was getting frustrated. I mean, you're a grown man. You don't see what's happening in front of you? I have to tell you play-by-play of what to do? Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. So funny. So although we see some things that have changed about Peter, other things haven't changed. He's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. He had no idea what was happening to him. And I think this is, this is us. This is you and me. Sometimes in real time, we are unaware of what God is up to in our lives. But he's doing something. We just don't know what it is. And oftentimes it's in hindsight we realize and look back at those seasons of wilderness, a season of pain and suffering. You're like, oh, oh, I see now what you were doing. So funny. Peter, as he was getting rescued, had no idea what was happening to him. He, has, he had to be in the street to know that God was redeeming him. God was freeing him. But this is you and me. What we have in this interaction with Peter and this angel is a simple yet beautiful expression of what faith is, what faith actually is. See, when we think about faith, we think about major decisions, major decisions. Should I move to another country? Should I apply for this school? Should I marry this person? Like, we think about these big leaps that we're trying to make. But what we see here with Peter is not a blind leap or a Hail Mary, but simple acts of obedience of ordinary and everyday things like putting on his clothes, like putting on the sandals, wrapping his cloak around him, one step at a time. Peter's simple acts of obedience led to his freedom. You know, I know there are many of us here in very difficult and challenging situations. You've been job searching for months, without any leads. Your loved ones are suffering and there's no immediate relief to come. Your relationships are strained. You don't know what to do. Maybe it's anxiety and bouts of depression that persists. Maybe your marriage is struggling and you don't know when it's going to get better. All, you know, all, all three of my kids, actually all four of my kids now, they love swimming. And the older three know how to swim now. But number three, the unique one, she has extra fear. So every time I try to go in the pool with her, she'll cling to me like a koala. Right, saying, don't let go. But at our pool, there is, you know, it's like three feet, right? I'm like, Dylan, you can, you can stand. But she will not let go. Like, no, 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 don't let me go. I'm like, no, 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 you can, you can stand. Trust me, you can stand. And so I would have to slowly bring her down and show her that she can stand in the pool. And even while she's standing, she's like, ah, ah, she's like freaking out. I'm like, take a step. You can actually walk on this side of the pool. 
It took so long for her to take her first step. But then she's like, oh, ooh, I could take a step here. And then she takes more steps, and she's walking around in the shallow end. But what, what happens eventually? She starts to cling on the rails, and she's going to the deep end as she clings on the rails. She's getting more comfortable and acclimated with the pool. You know, some of us, we feel so overwhelmed and overcome by our circumstances. You feel stuck and you feel immobilized. But I think what God is telling us is, put your feet down. You can actually stand. You know what? You can actually take a step. Trust me. Just take a step. I think maybe God is asking you to take a step today. One step of faith. Just one simple step of faith. Maybe it's to reach out to someone for help. Maybe you're suffering alone. And you're, you're just afraid that I don't want people to know my mess. But you're suffering. Maybe a step of faith is for you to just reach out. Reach out. Ask someone to help you. Talk to one of the pastors here. Maybe a step is for you to text that person that you had a falling out with. It just ended bad. Maybe it's just a text to see if you can reconnect. Maybe a step for you is to actually join a community group. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but we know amazing thing happens when we trust in God's grace in community together. Maybe that's the step you're going to take this, this fall. Maybe one step is for you to start praying again. Just start praying and talking to God again. Start reading the Bible again. Maybe it's to go home today and just break the ice and just tell your wife, I'm sorry. You're like, whoa, 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 that feels like a leap to me, right? No, but even that small gesture for you to give in first and say, I'm sorry, can lead to healing. But one simple act of obedience, I believe, can lead to healing, reconciliation, and redemption. You know, I'm not a fan of this let go and let God kind of faith because I don't think Jesus ever taught that. I don't think we see it in the Bible. Let go and let God. I think it's too lazy. Instead, we hear, fight the good fight. Endure. Persevere. Meet with one another. Submit to one another. Forgive. Give yourself to others. Let go and let God sounds good. But the Bible is full of directives that God has for us so that we can experience joy freedom and redemption Peter wasn't sure what was happening as he was putting on his clothes he had no idea what was going on but God was rescuing him what is one step you can take today in trusting in God here's the thing when when we even invite God in the ordinary ordinary everyday things I believe you can see miracles happen lastly faith is more about the object than the subject you know, Peter realized what happened to him, and now he wants to present himself to his community. So there was a prayer meeting happening at Mary's home, the mother of John Mark, who is an author of the Gospel of Mark, right? And this was kind of the home base for the Jerusalem Christians. This is where people hung out. So there was a Peter, uh, prayer meeting happening for Peter, and now Peter is knocking at the door, and a servant girl named Rhoda comes recognizes Peter's voice, doesn't open the door, but she goes back to the prayer meeting and says, Peter's outside. Peter's outside. And again, this is hilarious. The people are like, you're crazy. 
you're crazy. That's not Peter. But she's persistent. No, it's Peter. I know his voice. Oh, it must be an angel. This is so funny. Because they're praying for Peter, but they don't even believe in their own prayers. Their prayers worked. But they refused to believe that their prayers worked. And this is why I love the gospel. Or I love the Bible because, man, this is a detail that you should leave out. Right? These people in this prayer meeting were praying, but they didn't really believe that God could do this. Why include this detail? It's not a good look for the church. They're passionately praying, but they would not believe that their prayers worked. But there's something so beautiful, and I think something what, what God wants to t- uh, tell us and remind us today of the irony of this whole situation. And it's this. Peter's rescue wasn't dependent on the strength of faith of those that gathered, but the strength of the Savior who's gracious to save. Imagine God hearing the prayers, knowing that they're not actually confident that God could do it. But it didn't matter. God still saved Peter. You know, it's like me, like in the deep end of the pool, telling my kids, jump, dad will catch you. And then my kids are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me go back into the house. They come out with a life jacket. They come out with an inner tube with floaties on. And they come out to me and they're like, okay. Like for me, like, really? You don't trust me that much? So they go on, get get their life jackets, inner tube. They jump. What am I going to do? I'm still going to catch them. Why? Because they're still my kids. Yes, my feelings hurt, but I'm still going to catch them. This is our father. Sometimes it takes time for us to trust in him, but he will take it. He'll take the tentative faith that we have, and he'll take it and accept it. You know, the gospel is full of stories of extraordinary faith. Unbelievable faith, right? There was a centurion whose servant fell ill. Jesus is like, do you want me to go with you? Servant's like, no, 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 no. All you need to do is say a word and my servant will be healed. Extraordinary faith. Jesus marveled at this man. But then we have another another story of tentative faith. The father whose son was demon-possessed. Jesus is like, do you think I can save him? What does the father say? I believe. Help my unbelief. Such a half-baked confession. I believe. Help my unbelief. I think you can. I'm not quite sure. So help my unbelief. Extraordinary faith, tentative faith. How did Jesus respond? He heals both. He heals both. Jesus taught if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. What does that even mean? So let's say today I just feel bold and I want to do uh, the trust fall. So I'm going to stand right here. I'm going to turn backwards and I'm going to fall. Let's say I invite my son, Deacon, who's 10 years old, to stand right here to catch me. Would I fall? Heck no. I'll, I'll do, kill me. But let's say I get the strongest guys at our church. I know a few strong ones. Probably I'll ask Tay. Uh, maybe, maybe Jeff. Arthur's not here, but Arthur's like a heavy lifter. Like, I'll get these guys, and would I fall? 
Yes, absolutely, because I know that they're strong. Now, would you say I had more faith or less faith? Which one is it? Neither. It's not about my capacity of faith. It's about the object who's standing beneath me that depends on how much faith I have or not. It really is not my capacity. It's the object of the faith. We think it's the intensity of my faith. It's the degree of confidence I have that saves me. But clearly, that's not it. We, we, we don't see that in these Christians that gather for this prayer meeting. We don't see it in the tentative father. It's not the sufficiency of our faith, but the sufficiency of our Savior that saves us. See, everyone has a capacity of faith. Every one of us has amazing faith. The question is, what are you trusting your lives with? Who are you trusting your life to? See, many of, many of us, we have a sufficient faith in an insufficient source. We trust in our careers. We trust in the economy. We trust in politics. We trust in relationships. We trust in these things that actually cannot hold our lives, that cannot produce joy, that cannot save us, but we have a lot of it. We have a lot of trust in it. No wonder why we're so disappointed. No wonder why we're so exhausted. Because we have insufficient saviors. But here's the beauty and the grace of the gospel. And what we learn is this. That it's better to have an insufficient faith in a sufficient Savior than to have a sufficient faith in an insufficient Savior. That's what we have in the gospel. Because who do we have in Jesus? We have a sufficient Savior. God coming down in human flesh. Living a flawless, perfect life but then to give his life to die on that cross in, your, in my place, in your place. Not only that, he rose again after three days. The tomb is empty. He conquered sin and death. And he calls us your, his, his own. We are his children. This is a gift of grace. We have in Jesus an eternal, what we have in Jesus is eternal life, a perfect love, an unwavering acceptance, and a permanent seat at God's table. If you're here today and you realize that you've been trusting and giving your lives to an insufficient source of joy and salvation, and you've been wanting peace, you've been wanting comfort and rest, Jesus offers that to you. But then you may say, oh, DC, but I don't know a lot of things. I don't know how to be a Christian. I don't have the right theology but I think I want to trust in Jesus today. That faith, Jesus will accept. Your uncertainty, your tentativeness, Jesus welcomes it. He welcomes it. He accepts it. If that's you, I really want to consider, really want you to consider receiving that gift that is available to you today. And if you want to talk to any of the pastors, please come and talk to us. I would love to pray with you. But for the rest of us who may feel stuck, maybe you tried everything on your own and it hasn't worked out, and now you actually want to try to take a step of faith towards Jesus, God's not mad. He's not upset that he's second, third, fourth, fifth option. He accepts that faith, that one step that you want to take towards him. I don't know what you're going through. 
I can't imagine the frustration and the pain that you're experiencing. But what we do know about God is that he sees you, he knows you, and he has good in mind for you. And he's inviting us, just take a step. So church, I encourage us to do that today. And maybe that step right now is just to cry out to God and pray. So I just want to invite us to do that right now. Let's pray together. I just want to give you a moment because um, one of the clearest steps that we can take of faith is just to cry out to God. If you're going through something hard today, uh, if you're suffering today, just cry out to God and ask, God, I need your help. Please hear my cries. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for someone else. You can cry on behalf of someone else. So I just want to give you a moment to spend that time with God and I'll close us in prayer. God, we thank you so much for being so good to us, being such a good father. I thank you for the story of Peter and his rescue and even this community that wasn't sure if their prayers would be answered. God, we, we realize and we know uh, that it's not our own strength, it's not the intensity or even our own confidence that saves us, but actually it's, it's your strength, it's your grace it's your love that saves us. Help us to see you um, as we should, as a gracious, loving Father. And I want to pray for those here who are suffering, Lord. Uh, you know what they're going through. You know what they need. I ask that you be gracious and answer our prayers and our cries. But even though you may not, help us to believe that you're doing something still. God, we just want to lift up, especially those communities that are going to be affected by this uh, hurricane. Uh, God, I pray that you will be merciful. You'll be with the first responders, those that will be helping people out. God, may you be with them. God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the gospel. Help us, Lord, uh, to, to trust in you and take that step of faith towards you. Whatever it looks like, help us to take that step. We thank you. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.